What a morning, greatly encouraging time together to be reminded of why we have these songs to sing, to be reminded of the joy and privilege of being in each other's lives, and we watch each other raise our families and hold up and hold out and model Christ, the gospel uh, to one another. What a privilege it is to, to see that from our little ones all the way up to our special seniors. I like that. Special seniors. That's good. That's a it's a good ring. If you're one of our special seniors, walk out of here with that in your heart. Yeah, I'm special. That's right. Amen to that. I like that. I'm going to steal that and keep that. From, from our little ones to our seniors, what a joy. And it's a joy to be able to come to God's Word together. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open that Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. We're in a series through Paul's incredible letter to the church in Ephesus. It's probably a grouping of churches all scattered throughout the Ephesus region. He's writing to encourage them, to encourage them with the gospel, both in what it is, its foundation, its doctrine, its truths, and also in how it shapes the way that we live out our lives and our culture together as a church, the way that we live out our lives as people, as families, friends, the gospel, it's crucial to it all. It's essential. And we're going to continue seeing how essential it is to how we apply it to our living. So Ephesians 4, we're, gonna, we're tackling Ephesians 4 kind of slowly because there's so much foundational truth to understanding then the church in light of the world. And so we want to make sure we, we get this under our feet as we move forward in this incredible letter. We're going to look at verses 7 through 11 of Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 7 through 11. Let's hear God's word. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. God, as we come to your word, we pray that our hearts would be greatly encouraged, that we would see here these gospel gifts for the church, that we would have hearts filled with joy and wonder at your goodness and grace. And would you do that good work in us? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. There's something to that expression, it is better to give than to receive. There's something to it. We teach it to our kids because, well, one, we don't want them to be selfish, but also because we want them to know the selfless joy of contentment and generosity sort of meeting together in the form of giving. No one has ever been more content and more generous than Jesus. You realize that? No one's ever walked this earth more content and more generous than Jesus. He won the greatest of victories, and he has given the greatest of gifts. And these gifts are to be received Enjoyed by his people. Jesus gives, we receive, and this is for our greatest good. We're going to consider the gifts, these gospel gifts for the church this morning. 
And as we consider these gospel gifts for the church, we need to see that they're, first of all, gifts from a victorious king. These are gifts coming from a victorious king who has won the battle. And the parade is happening. And in that parade, the gifts are going out. Secondly, we're going to see that these are gifts that are with gospel proclamation. Gifts with gospel proclamation. These are gifts that come with these gospel purposes to proclaim the good news of the victorious king. And then thirdly, these are gifts given for gospel-centeredness that we'll touch on today and look at in the next two weeks. These gospel gifts for the church are, first of all, gifts from a victorious king. These are the gifts that come from victory. Look again, if you would, at verses 7 through 9. Let's read those again. Words should be on the screen. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had descended into the lowest regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. What's going on here? Well, first of all, in these few verses, in verses 7 through 11, and, and they spill into the rest of the paragraph of Ephesians 4, it's, there's a key theme that it sort of is uniting and tying this all together, and that is that Christ is giving. Christ is busy giving. He's giving generously. He's giving grace. Grace has been given, as we saw in verse 7. And, and all this is coming according to Christ's gift. And he gave gifts to men and to, and to the church. He gave this form of leadership. Christ is positionally and willingly the one who gives gifts. Whatever we want to believe. Here we have in this passage, whatever we want to believe about Christ, here in this passage, He is generously and graciously giving. He has the gifts to give and the heart to give them. And He gives them to each one of us. This each one of us is to be understood comprehensively. All of God's people. None miss out on Christ's bounty. Christmas time as a kid growing up, we'd go to my mom's side of the family, and we would sit around, and my grandfather would sit in his sort of, like, Christmas outfit, usually some sort of PJs with a robe, and then the inside of that robe was a pocket, and in that pocket were envelopes, and our names were on that envelopes, and in those envelopes was cash. And as a kid, you couldn't wait. There was a little fear that you were going to get forgotten, because you were getting old, but you couldn't wait. None of us missed out when those envelopes came out. Greater than that is Christ's gifts that he gives to each one of us. None misses out on Christ's bounty. And who's the one giving the gifts? Well, it's Christ. He is the ascended and victorious king. There's an important little passage that's being used here by Paul to encourage the church that Jesus really is the victorious king. And that is a passage found in Psalm 68, 18. Let's see what Psalm 68, 18 says here. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. What's happening here in Psalm 68, 18? And then what does that mean for us when we look at it and some of the changes in it? 
when we look at it in Ephesians chapter 4. Well, the context, first of all, of Psalm 68 is a call to God to come and rescue his people. If you were to read all of Psalm 68, it's just crying out. Um, Come and rescue us. And it's based on who God is and what God has done in the past. It's looking back at God's past acts of deliverance of his people. And it's asking for God to do it again. That's what's happening in Psalm 68. It's a psalm of David, who was in many kinds of battles and many kinds of circumstances. And he always seemed to have a lot of things seemingly stacked against him. And whatever the particular situation was for David in the writing of this psalm, David bases his cry for help on the character of God and his past rescuing works. And so the you in Psalm 68, 18, if you look at that again, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train. That you and that your train is, is it refers to God and God alone. It's about God and his triumphant return from battle Carrying with him the spoils of victory. And so David is looking and anticipating that God will win the battle. And then share the spoils of his victory with his people. That God will return triumphant. And go to the throne victorious. And what Paul, the Apostle Paul does. Inspired, mind you, by the Holy Spirit. Is he applies that hope. That, those words, that picture of God. Returning victorious with all the spoils from his victory. He places that imagery, that idea, that picture on to Jesus. So yeah, there's something profound being said about Jesus. Jesus is God. God in the flesh. Jesus isn't just some really great battler or or courageous warrior for God. Jesus is God. That's what Paul is saying here. And Jesus shows up in the church victorious with gifts to give. The spoils of his victory. Paul applies the victorious picture of God's triumph. He applies it in Jesus. Jesus is now placed in the spot in Psalm 68 that is reserved for Yahweh. Because Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, saw in Jesus' exaltation a further, fuller, final fulfillment of this triumph of God that we are anticipating in Psalm 68. Furthermore, Jesus is the one who descended into earth. He took on our humanity. His incarnation happened. And not only that, Jesus descended even further down into death, into a tomb. Jesus entered in all the way into our struggle. And as we know from the rest of Scripture, and as we see anticipated here in this passage, that not only did Jesus go all the way down into our humanity, all the way down into the grave, but Jesus came up. Jesus came up out of the grave, and Jesus returned to glory as one victorious over sin, death, and Satan. That is who we cling to as the church. That is who we are holding on to. Is the one who entered in all the way in, all the way down, and has been victorious over it all. And has returned to glory. Now, there's a 
there's a change. Besides applying that which can only be true of God to Jesus, there's a, another change that might be difficult for us to get around in Paul's use of Psalm 68. Is he using the Old Testament wrong? Did he remember wrong? Did he mess up the verse? And his, I mean, you're memorizing Scripture, and you've probably messed up a, a, a pronoun here or a, a word there or what have you. Did Paul mess up too? No, there's something important happening here. Look again at verse 8 and then compare it with verse, or Psalm 68, 18. So in verse 8, we, we see that, therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. But in Psalm 68, 18, it says he receives gifts from men. So which is it? Did he give gifts or receive gifts? And the answer is yes. <laughs> In fact, the Hebrew word for receive can actually mean give. And in fact, in Paul's or in David's day, in, in Paul's day, it was actually incredibly common for the conquering king, celebrating that victory, going through that parade, if you will, receiving gifts, but also then turning around and taking those gifts and sharing them with his people. God receives these gifts in order to give them back, if you will. Bless and strengthen and encourage his people. There's an interesting story in Numbers 8. We won't go into the great detail of it. I encourage you to look it over. But God's shaping his people, his Old Testament people. And he calls out from his Old Testament people a, a, a people that would be specially devoted to him. That are called then the Levites. These Levites were to function in a priestly way. Their, their job was to sort of be the, the, the worship leaders, if you will, of God's people, devoted to God. But then in Numbers 8, not only does God call them out and does this special calling out, he turns around and he actually just gives them back to the people so that their hearts would be led to worship God. While he calls for them, he turns around and sends them back to his people. Similarly, we see that here with what Christ is victorious over. It leads us to see Jesus, in fact. Remember, Paul is putting Christ in the spot of Yahweh, the victorious king. The king's spoils are subsequently given to his subject. Christ receives in order to give back to the very people he rescued. I mean, this is in line with the, the gracious nature of our redemption. It's in line with the progressive nature of God's redemptive purposes, how he reveals more and more through the pages of Scripture, ultimately being fulfilled in Jesus. And that helps us to then see that these gifts from a victorious king, it, it helps us to, to be encouraged, emboldened all the more as a church. In a world that might feel overwhelming, in lives that feel shaky, when we sing, Come Thou Fount, we, we sing with uh, an aspect of us that knows that prone-to-wander feeling. So what do we, what we need to remind ourselves as we consider what's being said here is that if there is anybody able to give, it was Christ. And if there was anybody willing to give, it was Christ. To each one of us. And he gives so generously and graciously. And what does he give? Well, of the many graces of Jesus poured out into our lives, 
here in this instructions for the church, Paul zeroes in on gifts with gospel proclamation. Gifts that have essentially announced the good news of the king's victory. Look again at verse 11. And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or pastors, depending on your translation, and teachers. He gave these people, these positions into the life of the church. And they are all word-based gifts. They're ministries that preach and teach the gospel and the word of God. Keeping before the things of God's word and of his truth and of this gospel before the people. And there are two kinds of gifts of gospel proclaiming gifts. We have the formative kind and the normative kind. The kinds that were used to help form and shape the church as it began. And then the kinds that normally function throughout the history of the church. Of those formative gifts that Jesus gave, the first we see listed is apostles. Apostles simply means sent ones. Sent ones. And Jesus being the most ultimate apostle. Jesus is a sent one. Jesus then also sent out sent ones that are the initial 12 disciples and Paul who was especially called. These are the apostles, formative to the foundation of the church. In John 20, 21, Jesus was speaking to those sent ones that he was sending out. These words, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has apostled me, sent me out, so I am sending you. And the role of an apostle as a specially sent one was to provide authentic an authoritative witness to Jesus Christ as the culminating person and work of God's redemptive purposes for history. That was their role, was to provide authentic and authoritative witness to Jesus. Next gift of this formative kind we see in the list is called prophets. Prophets were specially called to reveal God's word, his will, and purposes for the church as it was formed. They served as a foundational or formative role at the beginning of the church, laying out the truth that God would want to be laid out. In Ephesians, just earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, we see Paul already alluding to this when he said that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. He's the ultimate apostle and ultimate prophet. And then there were other apostles and other prophets pointing back to the ultimate one. Thirdly, we find then on this list, evangelists. Now, it's important to be careful here. It's not exactly how we would use the word evangelist today. We would use that word to describe someone especially passionate or or gifted or, or skilled or intentional with sharing the gospel with others. We would use it to describe that kind of a person. However, in the, in the course of the New Testament, the few times that we see it labeled, it's usually associated with someone who assists an apostle, carrying out responsibilities given by the apostle uh, in, in doing that work. Philip is called an evangelist in Acts 21. Paul writes to his main assistant, Timothy, to do the work of evangelist, of all places in Ephesus, 
Um, in 2 Timothy 4, 5, both Philip and Timothy worked very closely with apostles, sort of doing the work that the apostles would have them do. All of those, the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, Christ gave the formation of the church so that there would be a strong and sure foundation. Then comes some of the normative gifts, the gifts that are ongoing, gifts that keep going. And that we find as shepherds or pastors and teachers. A couple of things on that. All pastors teach, but not all teaches, teachers pastor. And yet both pastors or shepherds and teachers are centered around, are to be centered around proclaiming the truth of God's word and the gospel. And these roles were ongoing. They were to be appointed in each of these churches. They were the expected form of word gifts, if you will, for the church. In many of Paul's letters, he calls his, who he is writing to to appoint these people in these roles. In 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. All of these gifts, whether they're forming or normative, all of these gifts that Christ is giving to the church are gifts that keep the good news essential to the church. To keep the good news of God's victory, of the King's victory, front and center at the church. Jesus gave these gifts, formative and normative. They are important to Him and they are necessary for us. The church needs the constant reminding and rehearsal and rejoicing over the good news of the king's victory. It galvanizes and it encourages and it builds up and it draws the weak and the weary near. We desperately need to gather together week in and week out and have preachers and teachers holding up and holding out and proclaiming the good news of our victorious king. We desperately need it. Now, we might feel the pull to be more pragmatic or more creative or more relevant in what we do as a church, yet often those very efforts, though not always, but often, drift away from the design that Jesus had in these gifts. We desperately need this. In ordinary ways, we need this. We live in a world that is so easy to distract our hearts. The things of your life, the, the stuff of your calendar on your app, all the various colors that I'm sure some of yours look like, it's overwhelming, it's distracting. And when we gather together, do we need to be distracted further? No. We need to be reminded and encouraged and built up. In the good news of the victorious king, because the world around us distracts it. The world around us also can discourage us. Life can be discouraging. Heavy and hard things happen. And in that heavy and the hardness of those things of life, we, we can lose our bearings. We can crumble under the weight of them without the, the constant joy and hope that comes from proclaiming the truth. That we have good news of a victorious king. We also can come in here and gather in here very, feeling very defeated. 
We can feel very defeated by the sin that so easily entangles us. We can come in here feeling very defeated about the way that we treated somebody we love and care for. Our coworker, our boss, or an employee. We come in feeling very defeated that we buckled under temptation again. We can come in here feeling very defeated when we look around the world and we just see it just all going to hell. We can just feel defeated. What do we need when we're distracted and discouraged and defeated? Showmanship? No, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. We need the good news that Jesus entered into our broken world. Lived out a perfect life in our place. We need the good news that Jesus took that perfect life and went to a cross with it in our place. Bearing the weight of our sin and our shame. Taking it all in. Paying for it in full. So that we bear none of it. Not an ounce. He went to a tomb. He went into the grave. He died in our place. He tasted death so that death would not be our end. And he rose again. Victorious. Victorious over the law. Victorious over sin. Victorious over the grave. Victorious over Satan. Victorious over things that can be seen and unseen. All of it. And we need that. Whether you've been following the Lord for 60 years or 60 seconds, we desperately need that. And Jesus gave the gifts of these roles to the church to keep it front and center to our hearts. Because we can be distracted, we can be discouraged, we can be defeated. We need to be reminded, we need to rehearse, we need to rejoice, we need to rest in, we need to rely, we need to make much of our victorious King. These gifts that come with gospel proclamation are to help lead the church so that we would have and understand that these gifts are for gospel-centeredness. It keeps the church centered to the gospel, to the good news. Chapter 4 kicks off with the application of gospel doctrine to very clear connections of gospel culture in the life of a church. This is what it looks like for a church to believe the gospel. That's kind of what we're dipping into in chapter 4. This is what it looks like for a church to believe and apply the gospel. Last week, we considered the gospel unity of the church. Today, we're considering the gospel gifts for the church. In the next two weeks, we're going to consider the gospel purpose of and gospel growth in the church. And all of it is showing us, showing us, Trinity Baptist Church, how much we need the gospel to tether and to shape and to strengthen our heart as a church. To keep our hearts tethered to the gospel. Jesus once said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And similarly for a church, out of the heart, a church lives. And so what then is most important for us as a church family? Is it Jesus? Is it the good news of his victory over sin, death, and Satan? Or is it something else? Jesus gave gifts 
to the church so that the church can keep the main thing the main thing. And so for us, that is our call. When Jesus is the ultimate in our heart as a church, then dreams to continue making much of him stay alive. That it brings a warmth to our worship, a purpose to our community, an intentionality to our mission. That we want to see others. We want to see ourselves, each other, and others come to treasure Christ through all of life. To treasure him through all of the kinds of days of life. To treasure him together in this life. To treasure him when it's hard. To treasure him when there's great joy. To treasure him. Because he's the king who won for us. He's worth treasuring. And for us, it is our greatest good. So yes, it is often better to give than to receive. But that said, the irony is for the church, it's far better to receive what Christ has given. And he is giving gifts of grace so that we can go about making good, much of the good news of who he is and what he has done. And I encourage our hearts this day, encourage our hearts to know that God has gifted us with all that we need to be the church that he's called us to be. And we get to rejoice in that together. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this. And as we continue to explore it, we pray that you would lead and guide our hearts to receive these gifts well, to receive the purpose behind them, that is to draw us to you and to see in you the one victorious over it all. God, may that bring a timely encouragement to any of us in here this morning. I suspect that there are many of us that are feeling distracted by the fullness of life or maybe discouraged by the heaviness of life or maybe defeated by the sin that so easily entangles maybe feeling all of those and so god i I pray that as we hold up in song and in prayer and in word good news our victorious king that it would bring timely encouragement to any heart feeling any of those things that would equip us all the more to be the kind of church where much of you gets made Week in and week out for your glory and our good. Amen.